الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنتي إلى يوم الدين Our praise is due to Allah and may Allah peace and blessings be on his last prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. The topic principles of Tafsir is actually a very vast topic which I couldn't hope to cover in a half an hour session to be quite frank. So what I will be talking about is only an aspect of these principles. You know, giving you some food for thought that would encourage you to do some further research and study to improve your understanding of what is necessary what is the methodology, how should we go about interpreting or reading the interpretations of the Qur'an. Ibn Kathir, one of the major scholars of Tafsir, had outlined a set of steps or levels through which a person should pass when they attempt to develop a commentary on the Quran. And when I say tafsir, that's what I that's what we're referring to. Tafsir coming from the Arabic verb tafsara yufasiru tafsiran, which means Really to make clear or to make understandable. In the Islamic context, it, works, it, it relates specifically to the Quran, uh, how we make clear or make understandable the text of the Quran. Now, what Ibn Kathir proposed was that, and of course, the principle that he proposed concerning the tafsir was something which he sat down and reasoned and logically put together as the steps without consultation with the Qur'an itself, with the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad what he had said, what he did, and the methodology used by the companions themselves in explaining the Qur'an. He was a scholar, what he did is he looked at the information that was available to him. And then from that he extracted principles. But these, as I said, these steps are not specifically outlined. You're not finding the Quran where Allah says step one in understanding the Quran is this, step two is this. No. Nor will you find from Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he said step one is this, step two is this. No. But what scholars in Nikasir and others have done is they've looked at that methodology used by Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu They've looked at what the companions uh, did how they approached the teaching of the Quran and from their practice they extracted these principles. Now the first principle which uh, Ibn Kathir proposed should be followed uh, in the interpretation of the Quran and actually I should say before we go on to look at uh, 
That's the first principle. We should also understand why it was even necessary to uh, interpret the Quran. Allah has said, you know, that He has revealed a book in clear Arabic. You know, He has revealed it for mankind for their for their guidance. So one may ask, why then do we need to have a tafsir? An explanation. Why can't we just pick up the Quran and deal with it ourselves? The point is that, truly, if Allah had willed, wished, He could have made the Quran so clear, every single point in it so clear, that no one would have to look anywhere else. The reason why we have to seek a commentary of the Qur'an was deliberately done by Allah. This was Allah. Allah chose to make the Qur'an in such a way that we need a commentary. And this existed from the time of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad themselves. Arabic was their language. The Quran was revealed in their language. Yet, there are things, there are points, there are verses, ideas, etc. in the Quran which were placed there deliberately by Allah about which the companions had to ask Prophet Muhammad Just to give you a couple of examples so you know you can put it in context. We have uh, an example which is related by Ibn Mas'ud, which he said the verse, those who believe do not cover their face with transgression, or the term used is zulm. And uh, this is to, uh, verse 82 of Surah Al-An'am. When this verse was revealed, some of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad were very distressed, because who among them we're not committing some forms of zulm. And here Allah has said, those who believe, those who truly believe, do not cover their faith with zulm, transgression, wrong, sin. So they were distressed. They felt bad, I mean, because everybody was committing something. So, you know, what does this mean? Does it mean we are not true believers? So they had to come back to the Prophet and Sallam, and they came and they asked. We are all committing zulm. How does this mean, Ya Rasulullah? So he said to them, It is not as you think. Do you not recall that Luqman said to his son, Verily shirk, associating partners with God, is the greatest form of zulm? It is shirk that Allah is talking about here. Those who believe do not cover their face with shirk. Zulm is a general term but the, 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 what it was specifically referring to here, what Allah is specifically referring to here, is shirk, associating partners with Allah. But as to sins, none of us are free from sin. So, this is just an example, they said, wherein the companions were compelled to go back to the Prophet Muhammad to get clarity on the meanings of the Qur'an. And as I said, Allah could have put in this verse 
those who believe do not cover their face with silk. So tell me this is not difficult. Allah has said, even they found no one could have used silk. And then the compared would have been fine. They understood that clearly. They would not have had to go back. So this is something believers on the part of Allah. Why? Doesn't Allah want piety for us? I mean, is he making things difficult for us? No. Allah did this so that mankind would be obliged to go back to the Prophet Muhammad for the understanding of Islam. So we can never feel that we are independent of Rasulullah This is why our Shahada is composed of the two portions. It's not just one portion, La ilaha illallah. No, there is Muhammad or Rasulullah. It is in there. It is in there so that we will understand that for us to be able to implement Islam, to understand and implement Islam, we have to come to the Messenger of Allah. We have to come to Him for our correct understanding, for the implementation of Islam. So, from this principle, we can see that the first step of the Qur'an, of, uh, towards understanding the Qur'an, must involve coming to the Messenger of Allah. Now, traditionally, the scholars have said, that the first step is actually the tafsir or explanation of the Qur'an by the Qur'an itself. And truly, this is something which we have to consider. But it cannot stand alone. It does not stand independent as a single principle. And just to give you some example of the, you know, tafsir of Qur'an by Qur'an, so that uh, I can put it in uh, context for you. We have the verse, for example, in Surah Tariq, where Allah says, by the knocker or the, or the night approacher at Tariq. And what will make you understand what a Tariq is? Then Allah goes on to explain, and it is the piercing star known as Venus. So Allah uses the term at-tariq, which could have a variety of different meanings. Then he goes on to explain that it is al-Najmustaqid. Sometimes these explanations are within the same chapter of the Qur'an. Sometimes they may be in one chapter and found in, a, in another chapter. You know, something is mentioned and it's found in another chapter. For example, in Ma'idam, um, in, or later on in the chapter, and Allah says, these which are herded have been named halal or allowable for you, except those which we will read to you. And then later on in the surah, Allah, Allah goes on to explain the dead animals, blood, pork, animal sacrifice for other than Allah, etc., etc. Uh, we have, for example, another verse where Allah says, Sight cannot attack him. This is in Surah Al-An'am, verse 103. Sight cannot catch him in reference to Allah. Yet later on in uh, Surah Al-Qiyamah, verse 23, Allah goes on to explain that the believers will be gazing at their Lord. So, sight cannot catch him, 
is a general principle. In this life, no one will see Allah. However, on the day of judgment, those who enter paradise will see an aspect of Allah in paradise. So, there is in another chapter that clarification of what Allah said in a, uh, another chapter. But as I said, this understanding of the Quran cannot stand alone because although in some cases some of these explanations may appear to be fairly straightforward where we're using a section of the Quran to explain another section however there are many cases where if one does not use a portion of the Quran according to how the Prophet Muhammad explained it, then you will make a misinterpretation of the Quran using its various verses. The Sunnah cannot be separated from the Quran in its understanding. It has to be there along with it. So in fact, what we're saying is that the first step involves looking at the Qur'an, trying to understand it within the context of the Qur'an, but relying also on the Sunnah, checking with the Sunnah to make sure that whatever understanding we have come out of the Qur'an with is not in contradiction to some explanation given by the Prophet in the Sunnah. So we do not give precedence to what may be construed as interpretation of the Qur'an by the Qur'an over the Sunnah. Because when we put it in step form, we say the first step is explanation of Qur'an by Qur'an, then the second step is explanation of Qur'an by the Sunnah, then this sort of implies that uh, once you have completed that first step, if you've got that explanation, you know, it can stand by itself. But this is not the case. We have to go further in to look at the Sunnah to see and to be certain that that interpretation that we have gotten from the Qur'an by the Qur'an is not in any way uh, contrary to that which is explained by the Prophet And the importance of the explanation of the Qur'an by the Prophet has been emphasized within the Qur'an itself. We have, for example, the verse in Surah Al-Nahl, verse 44, in which Allah says, وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الذِّكْرَ لِتُبَيَّنِ النَّاسِ مَا نُزِلَ إِلَيْهِمْ Then we have revealed the reminder to you, O Muhammad, so that you may explain to the people what has been revealed to them. So Allah is making it very clear that that explanation, the understanding of the Qur'an has to come to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu he has also said, this is in Surah Nahal, also verse 64, We have only revealed the book to you, Muhammad, in order that you clarify for them the things about which they differ. So, there was this primary role of the Prophet as the explainer and clarifier of the Quran to mankind. And as I said, this principle 
was deliberately put in force by Allah in order that no one could feel that he can understand the Quran without coming to Prophet Muhammad and the significance of this is that in this way the meanings of the Quran have been preserved from misinterpretation because when we consider for example the Bible where each sect of Christianity and we have so many sects we can't keep track of them each sect will pick up the same verse will read that same verse and says it means this and that and the other and there are contradictory meanings and each one is arguing from these points but they are all using the same Bible the reason being that there is for them no sunnah to define the meanings intended by those verses so the human mind is capable of imagining all kinds of things and each sect has human minds at the head of it making interpretations which suit themselves so we have a multiplicity of interpretations so Islam in order to preserve and I'm not saying this is unique to Islam for sure in the time of Prophet Isa salam, he and his sunnah provided the clarification of the Injil only it has been lost most of it has been lost and similarly, Prophet Musa, his explanation provided the clarification of the Torah. This is the role of all the prophets. It is not unique to Prophet Muhammad However, in, in the Quran, which is the last revelation which we are dealing with, particularly here, this principle is the essential principle which preserves not only the text of the Quran, because you know, we all know about how the Quran is preserved, the history of its preservation, which ensures the, the uh, authenticity of the text, but it also preserves the meaning, which is even more crucial, because an authentic text without a surety as to its meaning, this is a placing in the hands of the deviants. So, this was one of the ways that, as, as Allah said, he, he promised that he is the one who revealed the Quran and would bring it together and he is the one who would preserve it. Preserve it not only in its text but in its meaning. And from this principle we also are able to identify another principle which helps us to understand when somebody is deviating in his interpretation of the Quran. When we see a person who explains the Qur'an without referring back to the verses of the Qur'an and to the Sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad then we are certain that this person is deviating because he is not following the methodology which has been set by Allah and put into practice by the Messenger of Allah and his companions. So this is one of the signs of deviation. The next principle, we can call it the second principle, although some scholars put it as the third, as I mentioned. The first two I prefer to look at together. 
the second principle is that of understanding the Quran and its revelation in the context in which it was revealed. That is, a verse was revealed in a certain circumstance. And we know from the history of the revelation of the Quran that the Quran was not revealed all at one time. It was not revealed all at one time. Though, we do have a verse in the Quran where Allah said that He has revealed the Quran on Laylatul Qadr. You all know this in Surah Qadr. Truly. But, there are other verses in the Quran where Allah said that He has revealed the Quran in stages. And the Prophet Muhammad clarified that the Quran on Laylatul Qadr was taken from the Lawh al Mahfud the protected tablet in which all things are written in the heavens and taken down to Baytul Izza in the first heaven. This was what took place on Laylatul Qadr. And from there, Angel Gabriel then took portions of the Quran to the Prophet according to the circumstances which arose. So, much of the Quran was revealed to answer and to deal with certain circumstances which would take place in the life of the Prophet Muhammad Allah, knowing the destiny of man, knowing what the Prophet Muhammad would face throughout his life, prepared a book of revelation whose verses would deal with the various circumstances to come in the life of the Prophet Muhammad and Jibreel was then instructed to take verses from this chapter, that chapter, from all over, bringing it down at a particular point when the Prophet Muhammad needed it, when issues arose. Now, as I said, the context in which the revelation came gives us further understanding as to how to apply the verse. We have instructions from the Prophet Muhammad but then the context gives us, you know, a further, a deeper understanding. And that context now comes from the statements of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad Their clarification of the uh, circumstances is the second level for the tafsir or commentary on the Qur'an. We look to see what did the companions of the Prophet say and do at the time when a particular verse was revealed. This is called the tafsir of the Qur'an by asar or sayings and actions of the companions of the Prophet An example of that is the verse in which Allah has said, whoever does not judge by what Allah has revealed is a kafir, a disbeliever. Now when this verse is revealed, and this verse is in Surah Al-Ma'idah, verse 44, Ibn Abbas said that it is a form of kufr less than the real kufr. In other words, this is not the ultimate kufr, as one may 
assume from the obvious meaning of the verse, but that this is kufr on a lesser level than the full-fledged kufr which assigns one to hell forever. And this was further explained to be the distinction between what is known as kufr qalbi and kufr uh, amali. That is kufr in actions and kufr in the heart. You see, uh, we also have, you know, classical example of this distinction being made by the Prophet in the case of Ammar ibn Yasir. We know Ammar ibn Yasir, whose mother, Ammar, his mother, Sunayya, uh, uh, she was the first person to have died for the final message of Islam, died for the sake of the final message of Islam, holding on to that final message, refusing to give it up, as a slave woman, she was murdered by her master, Sunayya. His father, Yasir, also was killed. Now, when Ammar turned him, and the slave master took him and started to torture him, and told him to say that Muhammad is a magician, a liar, and that his gods were laughing Uzza. When they put the pressure on him, he saw that death was in front of him. He said, Muhammad is a magician and a liar, and my god is and Uzzah, the idols of Quraysh. Now, Ammar used to attend the circle of the Prophet Muhammad which he used to teach in. And after he said that, he stopped attending. And the Prophet Muhammad noticed that he was missing. So he asked, where's Ammar? He said, we don't know. So he said, send some companions to go to find out. Where is he? Bring him. So they went and they found him and they asked him, you know, what's happening? So he explained that what happened you know, and he didn't want to come because of what he had said. So when they related back to the Prophet he told them to bring Ammar. So Ammar came. So when he came, he asked Ammar, when you said what you said, was your heart filled with Iman and faith? Or not? So he said, no, when I said it, you know, my heart was full, full of faith. Faith in Allah. So then the Prophet said to him, if they do that to you again, say what he said again. So, although in his actions, those statements that he made, these are statements and actions of Kufr. However, it is not in his heart. So this which may be defined as Kufr on the outside was not Kufr on the inside. It doesn't take him out of Islam and assign him to hell. Which is what, uh, you know, Ammar fears. But the Prophet clarified that there is a distinction between the two in terms of action and belief. So a person may commit an act that we may define as being kufr, but doesn't necessarily mean that he is a kafir in the fullest sense of the word. You know, a person may commit fornication. This is among the acts of the kafirs. But that act in and of itself does not make him a kafir. Similarly, the rule by other than Allah, this is kufr. However, if one, for example, not one, if one believes when one rules by other than Allah's laws, believing that these rules are superior 
to the rules of Allah, to the laws of Allah, French law, British law, so on, so if it's superior to the law of Allah, then he is in fact scattered in the first sense. However, if a person in a Muslim country, a country of Muslims, I should say, which has a legal system which is un-Islamic, but this person works within that framework with the intention of protecting Muslims, as, for example, a lawyer in this system. He works within the legal framework of the British legal system, which is a system of kufr, a rule of kufr. That person who goes and enters into the system with the intention of protecting Muslims, that though he may deal with these laws and seek rulings based on these laws, this does not put him into kufr. Can you grasp the distinction between two? It's very important for us, practically speaking. Because some people will tell you, don't become a lawyer. Don't be, you know, you can't be. So it means then that when you have legal problems, you must go to the disbeliever, maybe a Jew. You have to end up before him begging him to, to help you. You know? Well, this is not the case. We should have Muslim lawyers. People who are familiar with this legal system, but people who should also be grounded in Islamic law, to know the limitations, because of course, though you may learn that legal system, this legal system here, it doesn't mean you can apply all of it. There are certain aspects of it that you may have to step back. And you cannot function the way that the lawyers of this system function, in the sense that they will seek, you know, the best lawyer is the one who is best able to get off the worst criminal. And that's who is the best lawyer. The biggest criminal this guy is able to get him off, this makes him the best liar. Whereas from an Islamic perspective, if somebody comes to you as a criminal, you cannot fight in his defense. You cannot go and protect him from the legal system, no. What you could, the only way you function within a system is to ensure the rights of people. Justly. You function within a system justly. So you use the laws to help and to protect Muslims or other oppressed people in the society when they come to you. They have been, this has happened to them, that has happened to them, they are being treated as, you know, whatever. And you may use that legal system to help them get their rights. But now a criminal who comes to you, a murderer, a racist, etc., who comes to you and you know, if you're talking to the man, you know this is the case. It's not a question of mistaken identity now. This is the this is, you know, this is the way he talks and he's crazy and he did it. Now for you to start to prepare a defense for him, no, it's haram. Haram now. So, this principle of utilizing is especially important in minority circumstances as well as in countries, which is the case in most countries of Muslims, where the rule is other than by the rule of Allah. But where Muslims have to, sincere Muslims have to infiltrate the system in order to protect, to keep some of the harm that that system will, will propagate or, 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 or pour on the masses of the people, to help to protect the masses of the people from some of that harm, they have to infiltrate the system. The fourth level of tafsir, or what I refer to as the third level, is that of tafsir of the Qur'an by the language by the Arabic language. 
Now, one would ask, why do we need tafsir the Quran by the Arabic language? If we have tafsir the Quran within its own context, by the explanation of Prophet the circumstances as explained by the companions of the Prophet why do we need tafsir the Quran by language? Well, the Quran was revealed in the language of the companions. Classical Arabic known as Sutha. But in time, that Arabic has become modified. Arabic, which is spoken by the masses of the people, it's some of its meanings changed. And this is the natural process which takes place in any language. If you take some words today, you go back a hundred years in English, go back a hundred years, you find that the meanings are different then than they are now. They refer to different things. This is a natural process which takes place in all languages. And Arabic was no different. As time passed, certain words in Arabic changed their implications in English. Oh, sorry, in, uh, in the times. What, what they were used to apply to changed in time in the meaning. So, if a person, a modern uh, Arab, or a modern person who is Arabic speaking, if he reads the Quran and he does not utilize the classical Arabic as a means of understanding the Arabic, then he may come out of it with some distorted meanings. Uh, to give you um, an example, we have, and this is one I spoke about yesterday actually, concerning the term Buruj. In Arabic, classical Arabic, Buruj meant star constellations. But in modern Arabic, Buruj means the zodiacal signs. So now, when Yusuf Ali translated Surah al-Buruj as the zodiacal signs, that Allah is swearing by the zodiacal signs, by the horoscopes, astrology, then that just opened the door for those people who are involved in this form of shirk, astrology. See, this is a change which has taken place in the meaning of the Arabic. This is a very obvious, you know, example. The last stage, which may be called the fourth or the fifth stage, depending on how you look at the first of the two, is that of tafsir of the Qur'an by opinion. So what this means is that after a person has gone through the earlier steps of tafsir of the Qur'an, in its context within the Qur'an as understood by Prophet Muhammad that is along with the Sunnah, then looking at the context in which the Qur'an is revealed as explained by the companions of the Prophet and furthermore understanding the Arabic text according to the classical Arabic and this is in cases where there still remains something unclear at the end of all this we have to apply these verses now to our circumstances because we're not reading the Qur'an merely for Barakah this is a mistaken concept which developed amongst Muslims in a particular period of time. Reading the Qur'an for Barakah. Barakah meaning blessing. 
So one sits down and he chants the Arabic text. He doesn't understand a word that it means, but he feels that he is worshipping Allah by passing the Arabic text, believing that he will receive barakah for this. So, this has a basis in some statements of the Prophet and I won't say that it's something which is totally, you know, outside of Islam without any kind of reference. No, there is a reference. The Prophet had said that whoever recites one letter of the Quran will receive ten blessings. Barakah. And he went on to say that I don't mean that Alif Lam Mim, these are the letters and found in the front of some of the chapters, is one letter, but Aleph is a letter, Lam is a letter, and Mim is a letter. Ten blessings for each letter read. So, from that, we had, especially from the Ottoman period onwards, where Arabic, Turkish, and Persian nationalism had reached a particular stage where the new leaders of the Muslim Ummah, who were Turks, in, in, a, in a way of asserting the, their own nationalist tendencies and feelings, downplayed Arabic. And, uh, and I'm saying this is, I'm not putting this out of context to say that the Turks did it, but you know, this is a reaction also to Arab nationalism which had become rife at that time, you know. Uh, in that reaction, the result of that reaction is that the study of Arabic in the sense of spread of Arabic and the learning and the understanding of Arabic diminished from that period onward. It started to go down significantly after this. So what was happening is that in the various parts of the Muslim world, as Islam was taking root, and Arabic was the lingua franca of the world, we found that in the various countries where Islamic rule was, the people began to absorb words from the Arabic language into their languages. In some cases, and this is especially in the early spread of Islam, enough words were absorbed until the words in their language were more Arabic than the non-Arabic and they changed over into Arabic. This is like Egypt. Tunisia, you know, Libya, these countries that we talk about as being Arab countries, these people did not speak Arabic. It was an Africa, it's Africa, it's a part of Africa, Arabic was not the language. The people of Egypt spoke, you know, Coptic language, the people of North Africa, Berber, they had their language. Latin, because a portion of that was under control by Rome, Latin was the language. But with the coming of Islam, and the rule of Islam, Arabic becoming the language of communication, the language of administration, etc. The people in order to be able, who are being ruled, in order to be able to communicate with their rulers, would pick up, you know, just as anybody who goes to Arabia now, who wants to be there for a while, work there, whatever, he has to pick up some little words here and there to be able to communicate. The longer he stays, the more words he picks up, he eventually reaches a point where he can actually communicate fully in Arabic. So this is what happened, the language of Egypt turned over and became Arabic language you know, into areas of Palestine, into Lebanon, into Syria, these areas, their languages changed over and Arabic became the main language. Now, as Islam spread into other countries and the uh, Islamic impetus uh, started to, to 
weakened somewhat, we find that that process did not complete itself as rapidly as it did into the, in the case of the near neighboring countries to Arabia. So we had places like in West Africa, uh, we had the language Hausa, where Mas'ad was being absorbed, in East Africa, Swahili, or Mas'ad, you know, uh, in uh, India, Arabic was being absorbed. And we had these intermediary languages developing, which were written in Arabic script, which composed of large portions of Arabic, you know, Arabic was being infused into the language. However, with the rise of Turkish nationalism in a reaction to Arab nationalism, what you found is that that process became further slowed. And with the coming of colonialism, that process was brought to a halt. Because as the colonial powers took over these areas, they now insisted and obliged the people to write their language in the Latin script, right? And the infusion of English now started into the language. The process stopped itself. So you found places, you know, all the way uh, to Philippines, where the, the language of the peoples of the Philippines was written originally in Arabic script, they switched over to Latin. The language of, in Malaysia and Indonesia, where they used to write their language, Malay in the Latin, in the Arabic script, all now is written in Latin. Similarly, uh, in Turkey, this has taken place. In, in, uh, India, Urdu continued to be written in the Arabic script. Persian continued to be written in the Arabic script. But in uh, places like uh, West East Africa, where it's written, Sahil is written now in the Latin script. Similarly, Hausa written in the Latin script. So, uh, this process, as I was mentioning, you know, where the languages were being turned over into Arabic came to a halt. And Arabic became the language or the knowledge of a limited few. We had now the rise of what we could call a priest class, something almost like a priest class, where the scholars, the ulama, were the ones who knew Arabic and the masses of the people didn't in many parts of the Muslim world. So they were the only ones who had the key to go to the Quran. So the people, and in those times too, they prohibited the translation of the Quran into any other language. So the people were forced now to come to these individuals and have to depend on them for whatever understanding. And the teaching of Arabic for the recitation of the Qur'an, the pure recitation, became popular. And this spread throughout the Muslim world to a point where you had thousands and thousands of young people. They were the only ones who had the key to go to the Quran. So the people, and in those times too, they prohibited the translation of the Quran into any other language. So the people were forced now to come to these individuals and have to depend on them for whatever understanding. And the teaching of Arabic for the recitation of the Quran, the pure recitation, became popular. And this spread throughout the Muslim world to a point where you had thousands and thousands of young people memorizing the whole Qur'an from Fatiha to Nath 
being able to rattle it off completely and not understanding a word of it. The reading of the Quran for Barakah, blessing, became an accepted practice in the Muslim world. However, when you go back and look at the statements of the Prophet which people will quote back as support for it, well, he said that. And we cannot argue that he did say it. But we have to look back and see who is he saying it to? Was he saying this to a group of Persians? To a group of Ethiopians? And did he speak Arabic? No, he was speaking, he was saying this to Arabs who understood the Quran. This is who he was saying it to. So when he was telling them that every letter that's inside of the Quran, you know, you get them lessons for it, this was encouragement to them to read more and more of the Quran. We don't understand it because that's how they read the Quran. Good understanding to increase their contact with the revelation in the sense that the meaning as more and more Quran is put into the individual with the meaning, this will change that individual. This is why in the early battles, you know, after the time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the time of Al-Bakr, when the Muslims were fighting the, the world of apostasy which took place, the false prophets, etc., those were being killed. Most were those that memorized the most of the Quran. This is why Omar has come to our back and said, Listen, it's because he's true. You better write the Quran down in one book to preserve it. Because those who have read the Quran, memorized the Quran, it has changed them to such a degree that they were in the front lines of the battle. It motivated them, it has changed their character, made them into, you know, dynamic individuals. And they were on the front lines dying, giving up their lives for Allah. So, this is what Prophet was addressing. He was addressing them and encouraging them to recite, to understand more and more of the Quran. He was not even meant to parrot the Arabic lessons. We don't have any record of, you know, a person reciting to a Fatiha because if you take the literal meaning of what the Prophet said, then you could be justified in reciting to a Fatiha as Alif Lam, Ha, Min, Dal, Lam, Lam, Ha, that is Alhamdulillah. You know, I can decide to break it right down to the letters, so just go over the letters. That's all. This is not the intent. The intent of the recitation of the Quran is not for barakah in the ritual of its recitation, but for barakah in exposure to the word of Allah, meaning that it would change the character, the person of that individual who is reciting the Quran. This was the goal of the recitation of the Qur'an. Now, when we recite the Qur'an, uh, after, as we, after we have taken the various steps which have been outlined previously concerning how we go to understand the Qur'an, when we recite the Qur'an now, we will get an understanding from that Qur'an, which we now have to apply in our lives because the recitation, the understand the reading of the Quran is for its application ultimately. As the companion said, we need to learn the Quran five verses at a time. And we didn't go on to another set of verses until we had learned all that Allah had to say, you know, all the words, etc. And we attempted to apply it, then we went on to the next set of verses. This was their approach. Reading for understanding and application. This is the methodology. So now, when we have that understanding of the Quran based on Quran by Quran, Quran by Sunnah, 
by the explanation that combines the Arabic language. Now we have to apply it. Now when we apply it, this is when we are using our own reasoning. We have to apply it to our circumstance today. Uh, to apply to our circumstance today, we have to apply our reasoning, our, our opinion. If we have followed these steps, then applying it according to our opinion will be acceptable by Allah. Because we have done it according to the proper methodology. But now, if we apply the Quran according to our opinion without going through these steps, then we will be on a path other than that intended by the Quran. And it is by looking at these steps that we can identify the deviance. Because the deviance, when he is promoting the Quran, he will give you the text of the Quran and then he will give you his opinion. You don't hear anything about the context or the Arabic or, or he may jump straight from reciting a verse, go straight into the Arabic and give you his opinion. He doesn't come back to give you what the Prophet Muhammad said and so on. So once you see any book and you pick up, you have many, many books which have tafsirs of, you know, Quran, etc., etc. If you pick up a book and you see that the man is, you go to the verse and he's just talking, 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 talking. It means this and that and we do this and that and you should do this and that. You don't see where he is explaining according to what the Prophet said, what the companions did, and you know, including the Arabic meanings and so on. So if you don't see that, then beware. Beware of that tafsir. Because likely it will be a deviant tafsir. The person who is just giving you his personal opinion. Very dangerous. Or if you see a person, for example, he is bringing the verses, he is just bringing the Arabic means this, the Arabic means that, and so on, so on, so on. As I told you, the danger of that is that Arabic has changed its meanings in time. What is in modern Arabic now is not, some of it is not what was understood in classical Arabic. So he will make a reference and you go back, you go to a modern Arabic dictionary and yes, it will agree with what he's saying. But that is not what the verse intended. And he will use this as a means of deviation. So the understanding of the methodology of tafsir is for us to be able to identify the steps that we should take. One, if we are going to attempt commentary on the Quran, explaining it to others. Two, if we are reading texts which attempt to explain the meaning of the Quran, we should understand the correct steps to be able to distinguish between those who are promoting a deviant interpretation of the Quran and those who are promoting an Islamic, correct, orthodox interpretation of the Quran. At this point, inshallah, because we have a limited amount of time, and as I said, I wasn't going to attempt to cover everything of the principles of Tafsir because it's too vast a topic. I will now give you all an opportunity to ask any questions you'd like to ask, you know, pertaining to this uh, material. Um, those who have written questions uh, from the sisters would like to send them up, they may do so now. Any brothers would like to either write, we have some paper here. Or if you'd like to just raise your hand, you may do so. And I just answer that, that if there are questions directly from the floor, then please use the mic. I repeat that. If there are direct questions from the floor, please use the mic.
Uh, a question of the brother, just to make it uh, clear to those people who didn't hear him, is uh, what is the level of kufr which is sufficient to condemn a person to hell eternally? Since I explained that there is different levels of kufr, and I actually gave the principle when I made the explanation, it was the kufr which is from the heart. A person who does a, a forbidden act, believing that this act is halal, it is all, believing that this act is allowable to him, he doesn't believe that it is prohibited, you know, it has no meaning to him, then that puts him in the true state of kufr. And that will condemn him to hell unless he repents before he dies. Because of course, no matter what sin you may commit, you know, whether it's sin of kufr or sin in church, which is a form of kufr, uh, if one repents before one dies, that is, before one realizes that death is upon him, I don't mean when the angel of death comes, you know, death is here, your uh, soul is in your throat, then you repent, no. But you repent prior to that, then that can cancel the act or the statement that you did in terms of it being a cause for you to be in hell eternally. So it is limited in the heart, as I explained. The individual who enters into the legal system here, a Muslim, he becomes a lawyer, believing that British law is superior to Islamic law, or in the Muslim countries or countries of Muslims, wherein a judge or a, an administrator is applying the law of the land, which is not Islamic law, it's from French law, from British law, believing that this law is superior, it is better than Islamic law, then he has entered Kufr in the complete sense.
on this very topic and this other guy. Um, you know, there's a special text to like people in the central court, right? But you can make this for me on um, young men and women, right? Where there's these people that are around, you know, follow the trade process, okay? Now, okay, we differentiate, right? I mean, I'm not going to look at another movement, I'm just going to I'm a Salaam in the I'm not looking at Salaam, okay? And he's not a Muslim. Well, I would say that we would not identify people as kafirs and thereby refuse to give salams to them or return their salams. We would not do so if their situation is not clear. If a person espouses a particular belief which is clearly uh, against the fundamental teachings of Islam, then that person, at least externally, that person is in a state of kufr and we deal with him as a Catholic. If a person holds up a principle which says that God is a man, for example, Farkhan, Farkhan and his followers, Farkhan says, that God is a man. Really? Point number 12 on the back of the newspaper it says, we believe that Allah, God, came in the person of Master Farad Muhammad in 1930 to America. So a person who says that we don't have to ask him, well, you know, do you really believe this? Are you a believer of this in your heart? Enough. That is kufr. Outright kufr. Just like any Christian as a whole who says, I believe that God is the third of three, he is a captain as a whole. We can judge that situation. But now when we have Muslims who are part or who uphold the same principles as we do, right? But they may be following one Jamaat, uh, one group, or another group, then this is an area of danger for us now to start to label these type of people, people as, as perfect, unless they have openly made statements which are statements of kufr. If a person openly makes a statement of kufr, then you can define him as a perfect, and you have the right to treat him as a perfect. However, the fact that in his heart he may not uh, actually believe this, or he may be doing it for one reason or another reason, you see, that is with Allah. And Allah does not oblige us to determine what is in people's hearts. We judge according to what they say, what they do. You know, the classical example is in, that, in the case of Usama, the um, son of the former adopted son of the Prophet uh, who in, in, in a battle, after struggling with one of the disbelievers, managed to get on top of him, and when he was about to finish him off with his sword, the man said, La ilaha illa Muhammad This man is just saying, so scared, he took his head off anyway. So now, what he did was report it back to the Prophet Muhammad and the Prophet called the Sahaba. And he was upset, very upset, very angry with Usama. 
And he loved Osama. Everybody knew he, Osama was one of the closest people to him. Very upset with him. And he asked him, Did you open the man's heart? Did you open the man's heart to see what was in his heart? What he did was wrong. I mean, this is, I mean, logic tells us, right? You're looking at the circumstance. The man said, Laila and Muhammad Rasulullah. A minute before that, he was saying kufr and trying to kill you. And then when you get the chance to kill him, he says, Laila and Muhammad Rasulullah. I mean, your logic tells you, you're just saying that's a escape. But, we in Islam are commanded to judge by the statement. Initially, we have to give him the benefit of the doubt. If he says this, we give him the benefit of the doubt. But it doesn't mean now you turn your back. You know, so okay, you just have to the back, so he may not be, it may be a fish, and he kills it. No. You give him the benefit of the doubt, but you keep him under observation. You know? Because he's out there. Still, you have to keep him under observation. And now, depending on how he goes from there, this will determine whether this statement is true or false. You follow? Those actions, Actions can also annul. So the person will say, La la la, Muhammad and you go with him to find him going into the Buddhist temple and looking for Buddha in the act. You say, What do you think of this? This is Kufr. He's only saying that. You know, to get over on the Muslims or something like that. So your actions can cancel. I mean, because only some people go overboard and say, Oh, he said, La la la, Muhammad finish. You know, we have to accept him in Muslims. No. Not just like that. We accept them in Muslims. But when they make certain actions which now contradict the validity of that statement, then we have to judge them in that fashion. And that's what happened in the case that I mentioned yesterday, you know, of Abu Bakr. When the people refused to give zakah, and they were threatening Medina, they were saying, either you give us this confession, let us off the of zakah, we're going to come and attack you. Muslims were in a position of weakness, the army had already been sent out, you know, uh, Omar said that. You can fight these people. For one, they're strong, but for two, they say, Allah, 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 and they're making salah. But Abu Bakr clarified this point. He had that deeper insight to catch the, the essence here in Surah al That was enough. It's very denied. That's why it's not denied salah. So that looks are not in Islam. We have to fight them. So, this is the point we have to keep in mind that, you know, though a person, we have to judge from the outside, ultimately. We cannot judge what is in the heart. If a person says, La ilaha we take them initially on the basis of that. But if their actions or further statements contradict that, then we judge them accordingly. If a person's outer actions are those of kufr, then we judge that individual or his statement or those of kufr, then we judge that individual as a kafir. What is inside his heart is between him and Allah. We're not held responsible for that. Allah holds us responsible to judge according to external affairs. That's the general principle. Okay. What happens to those brothers who write verses in front of the Quran to imply that they are guilty? I protect you from evil, and they ask you to wear it around, but intending only to do good. Are they allowed to do this? These things happen in West Africa. 
Yeah, West Africa, East Africa, you know, India, Pakistan, I mean, all over the Muslim world, you know, this is not limited to any particular location. Uh, such individuals, of course, uh, in terms of Allah's judgment on the individuals, a person who may do so out of ignorance, this is how he was raised, this is how it was explained to him, that he do these practices, so on, so on, so on. You know, uh, Allah may forgive that person that action based on the overall sincerity of his faith. Though we may identify that particular action, the belief that he using the Quran as an amulet, for example, you know, to ward off evil, you know, as a talisman. Jews, although this kind of leakage, you know, smacks of shit, still, if the person is doing that out of ignorance, you know, which is an, an action, and the overall uh, faith of the individual is a good faith, then Allah can absolve that individual. Why I'm saying this, this is, as I thought, maybe a, a sensitive point, you know, because when you start to draw the lines, it becomes, uh, may become a bit difficult. But I'll give you an example to show you uh, how this may take place. We have in Sahih Bukhari, and Sahih Muslim, a story that talks about Salam related of a man, a righteous man of the past, who, when the time came for him to die, he told his children to burn his body into ashes, and to throw some of the ashes on the sea, and scatter the rest of the ashes on the land, so that Allah would not be able to hold him to account. Okay? Of course, when they did this, Allah caused the seas to bring his ashes together, and the land to bring it together, and they brought him back. And he asked, I you he asked, why did you do this? And the man said, out of fear of you, Allah. And Allah forgave him. Now, the idea that he did, the idea that Allah cannot bring you back if you burn yourself into ashes and scatter your body, this is This is wrong. This is believing that Allah is not capable of bringing you back. This is saying Allah is not all powerful. This is wrong. This is a mistake. This is incorrect. However, it was done out of ignorance. And the man thinks, and he said, it was out of the fear of Allah, he was a good man. He feared he had done wrong. And his fear was so great, he said, I don't want. And before Allah has to stand up for that. This is a very high level of faith. So, on the basis of that, Allah forgave him for the error of his act. And that is good Allah. To do as he chooses. We cannot go through and make this kind of judgment of those for people now. We are not in a position. This is with Allah, because Allah knows what to do in the house. You cannot go and say, Quran, you know, or this Sheikh, Imam, so and so, or that Sheikh, or whatever, you know, he has sincere intention and such great fear of Allah, even though he's doing this Sheikh, he's alright, Allah's gonna forgive him, no. We do not have that authority to do so. Understand me that it is with Allah, but it is possible that he may forgive that individual who is doing this out of ignorance. Because Allah knows ultimately what is in his heart. But, without a doubt, this is obvious from the question itself, uh, that act, the act of using the Quran as, an, as a talisman, you know, or, or as an amulet to ward off evil, this is incorrect. It is not acceptable Islamically. The Quran is not to be used in this fashion. The Quran is recited. I will quote you. I know people say, come and they will make an ayat of quote you hang it on the wall. Or they make an ayat, they will 
right eye for course, it's so small on a, on a piece of gold, you know, you can't read it. You have to use a microscope to read it, and they'll hang it, you know, as jewelry for women. Or when you see people competing with the sizes of the Quran, you say, oh, Islam is Quran, in Kuwait they found a Quran, but the Quran is one inch by one inch. They say, oh no, in India we made one inch, three quarters of an inch, three quarters of an inch. It's Quran. Which you, you, you need a microscope now, almost a lecture on microscope to be able to read this Quran. They say, what is the purpose of this Quran? Then you can get inside a rocket and maybe walk around the next one, you know. It is not acceptable. It is not the Quran. It is not the use of the Quran. Do you actually the Okay, brothers, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika, nishadu wa la ilaha al-ad, nastaghfirika wa nitubu lik, we ask Allah to help us to understand the Qur'an as it was meant to be understood, and to apply it in our lives, and to call others to that correct understanding and application. <laughs>